I was traveling uh, toward the end of this week uh, to be with some other Christian businessmen and some Christian leaders, and at one point, they're not from our church, somebody said, what are you preaching about at Scottsdale Bible Church right now? I said, doing a series on margin. And he said, you're doing a series on margarine? And I said, no, you dope, margin. I said, I'm speaking about margin. And he still gave me a quizzical look, like, you know, what's margin? And I realized that it really is kind of cryptic, that if you're not into this series and you just see margin, it, it is kind of like adding another word that Christians use that nobody else gets. So like we can add this to the blood, atonement, propitiation, small group, you know, all the words that you and I, brother and sister, bless your heart, all the things that you and I say that, you know, nobody else really gets, and now it's margin. But this is a great one to add, right? So simply put, what margin is, if you're visiting with us today or new to the series, is picture a page of paper, and your life is that page of paper. Picture all the writing on that page of paper, and there's margins on the edge of it. There's white space. There's room to breathe. There's room for reserves. There's space for God to write something and to do something. And when it comes to our time, our finances, our physical life, our bodies, even our emotions, uh, we live in a culture, as we're going to see, that has robbed us of a lot of margin. We, we live marginless in so many areas of our lives. So it's time to slow down, get control, and develop margin once again in our lives. So we've looked at time, and we've looked at our bodies last week. Next week on Mother's Day, very appropriate, we're going to look at emotions and margin in our emotional life today. As you saw with Luke and Hannah, we're going to talk about our financial lives. So would you bow with me right now and let's pray. Father God, in so many areas of our life, every area hopefully, we once again yield the right of way to you. I pray, God, that as we talk about a subject that your word talks about uh, a lot, this idea of money and finances and resource, God, I pray that you might catch some of us by surprise today, even catch us off guard, teach us something we didn't know, certainly order to inspire all of us, motivate us to once again honor you uh, in not just all areas of our lives, but especially this area of our finances that you've blessed us with. Lord, for any here today that are just out of control when it comes to their finances, and so many people are struggling still today, we pray, God, that today would be a day of hope and a day where we can get back on the road that you want us to be on. So we give this time to you now in Christ's name. Amen. So we are limited on time this morning because just of the nature of time itself. And we have another group coming in for 11:15 service. So I have absolutely no introduction. That video was your introduction. We're all into this topic now of margin and finances. And I want to give you my main point right up front so that we can spend a lot of time with it that I believe gets to both the cause as well as the solution of this whole idea of marginless living that we've gotten ourselves into as a country when it comes to our money. And the main point is simply this, and that is that our lack of financial margin does not come from having too little money. It comes from having too much debt. If you relate at all this morning to this idea of marginless living, of struggling uh, with your finances, uh, of, or maybe you've been that way before and maybe you are that way now, this is the statement for you, that our lack of financial margin does not come, as many people would suggest, from having too little money. The real culprit is the fact that we have too much debt. And I'm telling you, this statement goes against the grain of how most people in our country are taught 
to think about money. But we honestly believe that if we have money problems in our lives, it's because we're not making enough, or we haven't hit that windfall, or we haven't played the lottery enough, or we haven't done something to increase our wealth, when the reality is that's not really the root problem. I'm not saying that more money wouldn't help, but the root problem is not enough money. I mean, think about it. We're in the top 10% of the nation's wealth. Every, I'm sorry, the world's wealth. Every single one of us here today, everybody listening in our venues, everybody that's going to hear this message today in America is in the top 10% of our world's wealth. So by everybody's standard, it's not about the money we make, it's about the fact that we haven't learned to live within our means, we've fallen into a consumer mindset, a debt-oriented mindset, and study after study, expert after expert, and as we're going to see in a second here, the Bible affirms this reality. Now, to best show you this, I want to do something that I don't do very often, and that is that I want to give you a history lesson, even an economics lesson, albeit an overly simplified one, to try to help us all understand how this mindset of debt is so prevalent, so rooted in our DNA and our thinking as a nation, and then us as individuals. Because you see, what we're experiencing right now in our country, what we've experienced the last 200 years in our country, is a system that is unprecedented in the history of the world. And I'm going to submit to you right now that the system that you and I have been raised in, and like a fish swimming in water, the system we're in right now is in one sense a great system, and in another sense is a not-so-great system. So hang with me. You see, for the first leg of all recorded history to the end of about the 1700s, our world, and I mean the entire world, lived by and large under a very simple economic system. And it all centered around agriculture. And if you can remember this, you can remember the system that our world was under up until about 200 to 300 years ago, and that was land plus work equaled wealth. That was a system that the world lived under. That if you were a landowner and you were able to work your land or have other people work your land, that was your ticket to security. That was your ticket to wealth. So when Christopher Columbus founded America and sent word back to Spain that he had found a new world or new land, the big deal back then was more land, more, time, more opportunity for people to have wealth. When people came to this country 200 years ago, they weren't coming to go to the Grand Tetons and get a view. They weren't coming to visit relatives because none of their relatives were here yet. They were coming to get what? Say it with me. Land. Because land equaled wealth for the first upteen thousand years of our world. It's what all the major worlds or countries are founded on up until about two or three hundred years ago. But it's interesting. At about the same time as the founding of America, a man by the name of Adam Smith wrote a treatise called The Wealth of the Nations. And in this, he argued for what has become known as free market or free enterprise economics or a laissez-faire approach to economics as opposed to a government or kingdom-controlled, land-controlled economics. And in this new approach to economics, combined with the technological revolution, it created a huge surge in wealth and economic growth in the developed world, primarily America. Because you see, under this new approach to, to, to economics, uh, now not just land, but manufacturing, 
service, industry, production, and technological inventions were now energized in this free market approach to make wealth. Don't miss this. It was a change in how we viewed economics. People serving people, people producing many kinds of goods and products from cars to machines to indoor plumbing now were made available, now were a way for people to make a viable living. And things started, and these things started to control the economy in addition to land acquisition and usage. Even money started to make money under this new system with the invention of the stock market. Again, something that the Romans never knew about, something that the Greeks never knew about, something that even Western Europe in its early days never knew about. And so it was a whole new way, this free market approach, to free people up, keep government small as a way of making money. And this was good. Many people became modestly wealthy in the early days of our country. A very few became very wealthy. And broad wealth was created. For no longer was it simply land that created wealth, but now many other things, like service and production, created wealth. And our nation became great arguably the greatest nation that this world has ever known. And then in keeping with this theme of great, something happened in 1929 called the Great Depression. The Great Depression came along. And the Great Depression was certainly catastrophic. It was a huge collapse. Many lost their life savings and wealth. Unemployment skyrocketed and threatened this entire new system. Now, listen very closely to what happens next because this sets the tone for where you and I are today. Around 1930, a man by the name of John Maynard Keynes, an already famous economist, began to aggressively assert his views upon this catastrophic scene. And he essentially urged a strong governmental role in regulating downturns and the entire economy. You might remember this from college. It was called Keynesian economics. And basically, Keynes argued that the central federal government needed to consistently monitor and regulate what had then been the free market, even inserting itself regularly with policies and things like that in order to control the market to prevent a Great Depression from ever happening again. And very quickly, this led to the idea that the government needed to expand that the government needed to get bigger in order to control private commerce, which was already very big. And you're saying, well, what's wrong with that? Well, think about it. For government to get bigger, for government to control all of known commerce would take a lot of what? Money and a lot more employees. And the government didn't have that because they only have as much money as they can get from you and tax from you. And so national federal debt started, ironically, in the 1930s. And by 1940, when we were well into World War I, our federal debt reached $1 billion. And a whole new way of approaching the economy, and even as we're going to see in a second here, people's private lives began. So, to sum up, two new economic realities for this great country of ours. Money now makes money, not just work and land. A whole new free market system was developed. And secondly, the debt of the nations began, as debt now became normative and acceptable in order to control this big thing from a governmental standpoint. And the results of this grand experiment, I would argue, have been wonderful 
and catastrophic at exactly the same time. It's obviously wonderful because you and I live in a country that has developed a strong, free, democratic economy with continual advances built upon freedom in medicine, science, travel, conveniences, food distribution. I mean, we lead the world. That's why many people want to become Americans. Tons of wealth have been created, all built upon freedom and small government. But if you were tracking with me, it's also become very dangerous and catastrophic because now that debt has become normative, not just for the government, but as we're going to see in a minute, for the individual, margin is no longer a reality and everything is built now upon this artificial reality that we're okay on this mountain of debt. And again, I don't mean to be doom and gloom here today, and we covered this a couple weeks ago, but the amount of debt that our government has, and by the way, our government is basically us. So when we say our government has, we all understand that that means 300 million Americans have this debt. The amount of debt we have is staggering. It's $15 trillion. That's 15 with 12 zeros after it. As I said to you guys a few weeks ago, if you were to count one to a trillion at one digit per second, do you know how long it would take you to get to a trillion? 32,000 years. That's an awfully long time. A trillion dollars is an incredible amount of money. And here's what's really scary. When you break this debt that our government has down per person in the United States, and again, we have to do this because we're the ones that own this debt, it translates into $3,000 per year just on the payments in interest alone for every man, woman, and child in the United States. So even if we never paid this thing down, but just paid the interest on it, it's costing each of us $3,000 per year. If you're a family of five, $15,000 per year. If you were to look to pay it off right now, let's just say let's not give this debt to our kids, $50,000 per person in the United States just to pay it off right now, which means in my family, we'd have to come up with $250,000 in order to pay our share. I haven't written a book yet. I better get writing. <laughs> we have no margin. And again, this would not be so bad if it was just the government that did this. But this whole new way of approaching the economy, of approaching life built upon debt, has infected every one of us in ways that, again, the history of the world has not known. It's estimated today that more than 25% of the average American's paycheck goes to debt reduction and interest payments. In fact, 80% of Americans have credit cards now. I actually thought that might be kind of low with the average American having three or four credit cards in his or her wallet alone. And less than half the people pay their credit card off each month. I think this is the real indicator of where we are with credit card debt right now. When I was in college, there was no bank in the world that would have given me a credit card. Amen? I mean, come on! 1982, the kid's making no money, he's got no assets, he's riding on the coattails of the old man, let's not give him a credit card. Now, however, the average college student definitely has a credit card with a balance of $3,173, did I mention they don't have a job, and seniors in college will graduate with an average credit card debt of $4,100, this up from just $2,900 four years ago, and this on top of an average $20,000 student loan. And so what have our kids learned from us? 
that is normative, that is, that is acceptable, just go with the flow and do it. And yet we're paying a huge price for this, not the least of which is marginless living, as you saw in our video with Luke and Hannah, at a very, very early age. I, I like how Paul Bilheimer, a college president, once said this. you got to laugh at this, but this is where we are. Hey, look up here on the screen. He said, someone has described a modern American as a person who drives a bank-financed car over a bond-financed highway on credit card gas to open a charge account at a department store so he can fill his savings and loan-financed home with installment-purchased furniture. <laughs> that's where we are today. And that's how many, many, many people function. And I know the question that a thinking person would ask at this point. They'd say, why do we do this? Why do we have to go into debt? And the answer is so simple, but scary. The reason that we go into debt is because statistically, the average American spends more than 100% of his or her income. So, so this is why our main point is so important. I don't think the issue is that we don't make enough. The issue is, is that we've convinced ourselves that we need more than we can afford. Advertising in America doesn't help. And as a result of that, we feel like we need to spend more than what we have and we have to go into debt in order to fund our lifestyle. And again, you're imbued with hundreds of messages every day that foster this in your soul. You're told you need a newer car, a bigger home, the latest technology, a better cell phone. And if you can't afford it, we will help you by giving you the financing in order to do it. And mixing this buying power with the debt that we incur you can see that no longer does our cup overfloweth. We now have no margin. Our economy is built unashamedly on debt. Our culture is bent on convincing us that we need more. And our internal temptation is to fill the void in our lives with things and mix all that together, and we have no margin in our finances. So the only question I want us to wrestle with is what are we to do? As I've asked in previous weeks, and I think this is a question Scottsdale Bible Church needs to wrestle with, is what does a rightly focused, humble-hearted follower of Jesus do when there's no white space left on the page of one's life? Two things I want to share with you in our time remaining. One is a principle that is critical to our thinking. Remember, we're trying to change our thinking in this series. And then I want to share with you some practical help that Pat mentioned earlier about gaining margins. So first, let's adjust our thinking. This is going to be so critical for you and I this morning. And here's what you need to begin to affirm, and that is that it's all from God. It's all from God, and our only task is to use it well. It's all from God, and so we need to use it well. This is what theologians and Bible experts call the stewardship or managing principle that we learned a few weeks ago when we talked about time margin. Simply put, that the adjustment that God wants in our thinking is to recognize that everything we have is from Him. He is the giver and owner of it all. It's just on loan to us. And that God smacks a label on you and I that says manager or steward. And that's how he wants us to think and view our lives with everything, including our money. And this is the mindset that you must have if you're ever going to gain freedom with your money. As many of us know, Jesus told lots of stories when he was on this earth. It was one of his signature trademarks and how he communicated truth to us. And so with the backdrop of our first point here, this idea of being a manager... 
with our blessings, I want to read for you one of Jesus' more well-known stories found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 29. And again, you might have heard this story before, but we really got to cement something in our minds and our hearts here that the story of Jesus teaches us, and I'll get to it in a minute. But let me read for you this story first. Matthew 25, beginning at verse 14. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had made two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And he also, who had had two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with, my own, with, with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he, who have an, who, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. You know, as I read that story again this week, I tried to read it with very, very fresh eyes, quite frankly, some of your eyes, thinking, you know, if you never heard that story, you think it's kind of harsh, isn't it? I mean, you walk away going, man, I mean, this isn't like the meek and mild Jesus. This thing's kind of harsh. And yet with that backdrop, I want you to, Notice two things that Jesus is really trying to get at here in this story. First, notice that he's trying to tell us that we are all blessed by God, but some more than others. I know this is hard to hear, but it's really important to see. It's one of the main points of the story. That what Jesus is saying here is that it's all God's, and he has blessed us all in some way. Again, everybody was given a certain measure of talents here, uh, and yet, it's not necessarily an equal giving or a fair giving. Some were given one, some were given two, some were given five. And so in life, we could translate this to mean that there are some one-talent people, some two-talent people, some five-talent people. And again, though that's a harsh reality, we all know this to be true. You learn it by the time you're in first grade. That when it comes to mental acuity, athletic ability, relational capacity, and even financial blessing, God says that we've all been given something. That's part of being created in his image as a wonderful image bearer and blessed with the gift of life. But it's not necessarily an equal giving. 
there's one, two, and five talent differences. And what you need to know is that this goes against the grain of how many of us want to think. Though we know this is the reality of life, we tend to think, especially in our democratic society, that everything should be fair and everything should be equal. But the Bible does not affirm that, even in some of the rudimentary areas of life, like your mental acuity, your athletic ability, and even financially what God has blessed us with. But isn't it interesting that God's concern here is not with how many talents have been given, but his concern is the second thing that I need you to see in Jesus' story, and that is that God's main concern is that we use well what we have been given or blessed with. And I'll define using it well here in just a second, but think about it. This was the only thing that God faulted that one servant for, that he didn't use well the one talent that he has been given. It all went back to his faulty view of life, his faulty view of God, I would add his non-managing, non-stewardship view of life that prevented him from recognizing that what he had was indeed a gift from God and that he needed to use it well. And by use it well, what God means, both in Jesus' story here as well as when you add up all the other parts of the Bible, is three things. Now, this is in your notes. It's diving on the screen, but listen close. When you add up what the Bible says God wants from you and I with our money to use it well, God means responsible management, disciplined enjoyment, and generous sharing. I'm telling you, you'll want to latch onto that. Responsible management, he wants us to manage well what we've been blessed with, whether it's one, two, or five talents. Disciplined enjoyment, which is different from hedonistic enjoyment meaning that he has blessed you to enjoy the blessings, but as we're going to see in a second here, it's a disciplined enjoyment, and then generous sharing. I'm going to suggest to you in a minute, no matter what level you're at right now, when it comes to your finances, no matter how much of a mess or not a mess it is, all three of these things apply. Responsible management, disciplined enjoyment, generous sharing. All of that is built upon the fact that God has called you a manager, a steward of what he has blessed you with. And without that mindset, you will never find freedom in your finances. Uh, something happened to me when I first came here five years ago that I, I, I kind of left an indelible imprint on my mind when it comes to this idea of me not owning stuff. Uh, as many of you know, I candidated here in August of 2007, so it'll be five years ago this August, and you also know that this was a tough move for my kids because they were all teenagers, very entrenched in the Ohio school system that we were in and the community that we were serving in and all of that. And so it was really hard for them to come out to consider coming here to Scottsdale, especially in August. And so the, the search team knew that. And so what the search team did, I kid you not, is when we came out for our 11-day candidating trip, the second we landed at Sky Harbor, they had a van waiting, and they whisked us up to Sedona <laughs> for two and a half days of R&R. &R. And, and their obvious and unashamed attempt was to buy off my kids. And so we went off to Sedona. And a generous guy in this church's wife lent us their place in Sedona, and it was unlike a place my children had ever seen. It was a beautiful villa 
just outside of Sedona, tucked away there in the Red Rock territories. And this place looked like an Italian villa from international house hunters. I mean, it was just incredible. The first thing my son Paul did is he ran around to the three bedrooms on the outside terrace and he came in saying, Dad, there are seven TVs in this place. He'd never seen a house with seven TVs in it, certainly not ours. There was a state-of-the-art kitchen, beautiful furnishings, an outside deck with beautiful views of the mountains and a hot tub, and we were to enjoy this for the next two and a half days, and enjoy it we did. However, like many of you, if you were blessed with a gift like that, you would also be cognizant right from the get-go, and tell me if this isn't true, that what you were experiencing was not yours, it was on loan, and, and that you better treat it well, right? I, I think even the biggest slobs among us who treat our cars and our houses not very well, if we were given something like that, would say, I, I better treat this place nicely. And we did. For the next two and a half days, we kept things in place. We cleaned the kitchen, which when we normally wouldn't have. We, we turned the hot tub down after we used it. We made the bed in the morning. We folded towels. We locked up when we were leaving. And I think we, even though a cleaning crew was coming in afterward, we tried to leave the place either identical or possibly even better than we found it. It's just something that hits you when you're blessed with something and you know it's a blessing and you realize it's not your own. What left an indelible imprint on me was that that's how God sees all of our lives with everything that we have. That he basically says, as much as you might think it's yours, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Every good gift and blessing comes from him, and he says, it's on loan. You're just passing through. This world is not your home. I've blessed you with some things that will give you some joy, but you can't see it as yours. You need to see it as given to you from him. You're the steward or manager, but ultimately it's him. And you're saying, why is this so important? Because it changes the way you view your possessions. If you declare that they are yours, which is what America teaches us to do, if you declare that you are the captain of your own soul, the controller of your own destiny, I'm telling you, good luck. Because the Bible calls that flesh-driven life where you're just living in the flesh, living in your own devices to make life work, and for a while it will go well, but because you are not infinite, because you are finite and fallen, you'll eventually come to a head. The Bible says that you need to depend on God, and the way you depend on Him when it comes to your stuff is to realize that it's all from him, it's just on loan, and he has some values on how you're to use it. Not the least of which are responsible management, disciplined enjoyment, and generous sharing. So, once you and I start viewing life this way, uh, what do we do then to gain financial margin? We've got about 10 minutes left, and I want to share with you four things that will help you, if you're at all interested, help you have financial margin in your life. And you guessed the first one. But we need to say this because it's where most Americans are and they need help with. And that is that the first thing you need to do is get out of debt and stay there. You need to get out of debt and stay there. I, I can't emphasize this enough. It, 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 imagine, if every Christian just did this, can you imagine the power behind our enjoyment and sharing? The freedom that Hannah talked about that we would all have can you imagine and yet it's so not the way people think 
I remember a few years ago, I had, a, I had a car shipped here that when my father-in-law sold me, and it was a little Miata, one of those little Mazda Miatas, and it had 4,000 miles on it. The guy was insane about it. He never took it out in snow. It was beautiful, and he sold it to us for a great price. We drove it here for about a year, and we realized, eh, we don't like that car. It's too hot here. Like, why do you need a convertible here? You get the sun everywhere you go. And so we decided to sell it. And I just wanted to get out of it, what we had into it, so I was selling it at a pretty low price. And a guy from Mesa called me when I had it on Craigslist, and, and he said, I want to buy your car. And he came up and looked at it. He said, I want to buy it. Uh, he said, I'm going to give you, give you whatever thousand dollars cash for it right now. And I said, you got that much cash? He said, yeah, my wife and I don't believe in going into debt. We pay cash for everything we have. <laughs> I got to tell you, I looked him right in the eye and I said, you got to be a Christian, right? I knew he was either a Christian or a Mormon. I said, you got to be a Christian. <laughs> And he looked at me and he said, praise the Lord, brother, I'm a Christian. <laughs> now, why did I know that? He didn't mention anything about Jesus. You look, the vast majority of people that would say they got to pay cash for something is either like a, a, a Michigan militia guy, you know, or somebody that's a Christian. I, I shouldn't equate the two. That was a bad illustration, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, it's just weird to think that you would pay cash for everything, but that's the way God wants us to think. Larry Burkett used to say when he was alive, he's one of the great financial guys that helped a lot of Christians, he used to say that, you know, outside of your house, even that he struggled with, uh, you really shouldn't have debt for anything. Some add maybe a car, but when it comes to anything beyond those, not at all. You see, the Bible always warns us about debt. Proverbs 22.7 says the rich rules over the poor, the borrower is a slave to the lender. And we all know that, that when you're in debt, it's not a fun or good thing. So, so how do we get out of debt? Two things you got to do. You got to commit to live on what you make and no more. In other words, you must jettison 110% living and realize whether you're a one, two, or five talent person, that's what God's given you right now and, and that you need to live on what you make. And a budget, by the way, what Hannah mentioned earlier, helps tremendously. Kim and I uh, live on a budget, have now for 25 years, a written budget every month where we print it out and we have all our different categories of where our expenses need to go. We have the estimated amount, then I write in the actual each month for what I actually spend. And we're disciplined about where our money goes. And now we got kids in college, so that adds complexity. And then only what is left over is used for savings and a vacation or enjoyment here right now for spending, but no more than that. We have no credit card debt, we don't live by that. And we've done that at every single level of income that we've lived at together for now 25 years of marriage. It's called a budget. You can go to www.crown.org. Easy to remember, crown.org. They have all kinds of tools to help you develop a budget. And then the other thing I would say is commit to a process and avoid quick fixes. You know, the Proverbs are really wise here. The Proverbs say in 13:11, wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gains little, gathers little by little will increase it. Isn't that wonderful? Let me ask you a question. What do you think, I know I'm stepping some toes here, but let's just be honest about this. What do you think that passage says about the lottery? I, I, I would, I know, ooh, I would not say that it is sinful to play the lottery. I don't think I could prove that. I would definitely say it's not wise to do so. It gives you a thrill. I get it. I stand there at the Circle K and watching everybody come in, and I just want a Coke, and these people are taking up my time. Six numbers, writing it all down. I get all that, and I see the smile on their face and the hope in their eyes, and I, I get it. I get that. 
And then as I'm walking out to my car, because I've never bought a lottery ticket in my life, I know the statistic, and that is that Americans spend $57 billion on lottery tickets, and the odds of you winning the six-number game are 14 million to one. Do you realize what 14 million to one odds are? Fox News ran a thing a little while ago in which they gave corollaries to this. The odds of you getting hit by lightning six times in your life are 14 million to one. So let me ask you a question. How many people do you know have been hit by lightning six times? That'd be the most unlucky person in the world. That's the odds of you winning the six numbers. And so again, I think the Proverbs wife, it, there's no quick fix to this. We all love to read the stories about the person you know, who won the lottery and how it solved all their problems. It actually didn't solve all their problems. I remember saying to my father-in-law once, because he plays a lottery lot, and he's a great guy, but I once said to him, I said, Dad, you know, I said, um, I said, I've heard and read that people who win the lottery actually have more problems with all that money than, than they had before. And he, he's such a great guy, he looked at me and said, well, them kind of problems I could handle. <laughs> and I thought, well, so that didn't work for him. But anyways, we offer help when it comes to people wanting to get on a budget, wanting to take a process. But we have a class that Pat mentioned that's going to start in a couple of weeks called Next Steps. That's for everybody, whether you're in trouble or not, just Next Steps on Gaining Margin. But we have debt counselors that meet with people every day, here in this church every day. We could provide one for you. We have classes. John and Monica Riley run a class with Crown Ministry. We have Financial Peace University. Uh, many things that will help you with this. Second thing we need to do, if you want to gain margin in your finances, is you need to learn to live simpler. You need to learn to live simpler. Uh, we live in a day and age where complexity on a, uh, a, a possession level is just out of control. And we're all convinced that we need more complexity, more things to make us happy. But, but listen to what the scriptures say. This is life-giving. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, I like the NIV translation. It says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Guys, I'm with you in this. I mean, I look at that passage, and it's one of my favorite passages, but it's so hard to live. Because when I've tried to say, okay, I've got to be content with what I have, content with my walk with God, content with my beautiful wife, content with my three turning out pretty well kids, content with, with my friends, content with my church, I'm so incredibly blessed. Why do I need a new iPhone? I sit there and say, but I want one. I want one. And, and, and I want this next thing, and it's going to give me the throne. It's going to feel good for about a day, if even that. And I realize the scriptures are right. That godliness with contentment, especially if it's going to cost me debt, is just not worth it. And I think living simpler is a very, very life-giving thing. I remember a few years ago when I was preaching on this in my last church. It's a really funny story. I, I, I thought I had a great illustration for all of this because in Ohio, I was living in an old farmhouse and had a bad electrical system and a lightning strike, again, six times, sometimes it happens, hit my house one night. It came through the wires and it blew up my TV. I, we only had one TV in the house, a 25-inch big old TV, and it just blew the thing right out. And Kim and I have always worked very, very hard to live on cash. And so I said to Kim, this was about a decade ago, I said, we're not going to buy another TV until we can pay cash for it. And I think this will be good for our family. So I actually canceled cable. I said, until we can pay cash, we're not just going to just, you know, little house in the prairie, the Waltons, that'll be us. <laughs> and, and for about a month, we did that. And then I came to this sermon that I was doing on financial margin. 
And I'll never do this again, but I, I decided to use that as an illustration. Do you see where this is going? So I got up in front of the church, and I told him about the story, the electrical hitting the TV, and I blew up the TV, and, and, I, and I said, and you know, Kim and I, I was, I was trying to model godliness, Kim and I are, are not going to buy another TV until we can pay cash for it. What do you think happened next? Somebody bought us a TV. It was really embarrassing, actually. They came over to the house. It was like a 54-inch Sony. And he pulls it out of this truck, and he's smiling, you know, ear to ear. And, Pastor, I got you a TV. And I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. And it was so nice, and I accepted it. And so he brought the TV in. They brought the TV in. Well, you don't want to turn that down. And, and he set it up in our family room. And I'm not kidding. My wife was ticked. She gets home, and she looked at it. And before I could say a word, where did you get that? You know, and I go, settle down, honey. It was a gift. I said, the sermon illustration worked. It was a gift. <laughs> I really was so embarrassed. And I'll never forget what she said to me. She looked at the TV and she said, next time use an illustration of our kitchen. <laughs> oh, gosh. And I'll never do anything like that again. And so we don't need a TV. And Kim has always been very committed to living simpler, and that's what I love about her. And, uh, and, and I think it's healthy for all of our souls to say, I will live within our means. Again, Larry Burkett was brilliant here. He used to say whether you're a single mom on, on a lower income, whether you're a married couple that's struggling right now, whether you have a ton of money or not, you, you need to live simple and live within the means that God has blessed you with. Uh, third, I'm not going to spend any time on this, seek wisdom and accountability. I, I, I just, you know, it, it's, there's no room for pride when it comes to our money. There's really not. I know it's hard to talk about money today. You know, it's funny. And back in the old day, you didn't talk about sex, politics, or religion. Remember back in the 50s? Now you can talk about sex, politics, and religion until you're blue in the face. Two things people don't want to talk about in polite society now is your money and how to raise your kids. Even as a pastor, no one wants to hear this stuff from me, so I'm glad you guys are open. But the reality is, is that we need to talk about this. We need to be accountable. I've always been accountable to a few close friends for what I do with my money. It's just part of living in community. And then fourthly, and this will surprise some of you, but this is key, practice generosity and sharing. Now listen closely. The American myth is that I should only be generous from my overflow. I should only be generous when I have so much that my cup overflows and I can sort of skim off the top, picture the foam, and throw it to somebody else. That is not God's way. God says no matter where you are at, in your one, two, five talent, no matter where you're at with financial margin, generosity is good for you to practice. Why? Because it blesses others and that will give you joy. It causes you to let go and that will give you peace. And it honors God and that will give you contentment. So Kim and I have practiced generosity ever since day one. And we're going to talk more about that in June when we talk about generous spirits. But we need to start thinking about that now. Because God is honored with generosity. And many of you are doing that. We just need to continue to keep that on our radar. My prayer coming into today was this. My prayer was, is that you guys would leave with hope. I know there's a lot of hurt out there. I know there's a lot of pain. We're still recovering from 2008 and what happened to our country. And yet the reality is God comes along and he says, there is hope. You can gain margin with your finances. You can. See yourself as a steward. See yourself as a manager. Practice those four things, and you will gain margin. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you that your word comes along, and even in the midst of times when we seem so discouraged, it lifts our head, points us to you, and gives us hope. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that for each one of us here today, we're a diverse group when it comes to the financial thing, that, God, you might meet each of us in our spirits and our minds and help us, Lord, to think differently and behave differently based on what we have learned. God, for some of us, this is life-changing stuff. We're ready for this, and we're ready to implement it. For others of us, this was just a great reminder of where the road we need to continue on as we honor you when it comes to getting out of debt and when it comes to living simpler and to seeking accountability and to being generous in our spirit and letting go of our resources. So God, bless us indeed. May we find our sufficiency and our satisfaction in you and only in you, I pray. In Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next time.